Good morning, everybody. So uh, we are in the book of John today. Uh, we're in John chapter 18. I don't know exactly, I could look it up, uh, when we started John. Um, but if we go as far as I intend to today, and there'll be enough uh, content for about a chapter and a half um, uh, in the next couple of weeks. And it just so happens that on Easter, we'll probably hit chapter 20, which is uh, on the resurrection. So I think it's kind of cool how that has all worked out. And uh, it's one of those nice little things that happens. In the first chapter of John, very quickly, uh, the disciple um, introduces us with a few passages which I think are worth um, repeating because uh, we're heading into a new section today and I think it's good to get some perspective. John 1 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made and him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made known through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the most amazing introductions to any book in history, and we have it right here. So we have John introducing us to Jesus, and I don't know how many times, but so many times we have the, the concept of Jesus being the light, coming into the darkness so that he would be the light that would... Uh, enlighten everyone as it says in verse 9 and right after that later in the chapter we get introduced to Jesus we understand who Jesus is and for the next uh, 12 chapters we have a description of Jesus public ministry he was collecting his disciples he was uh, ministering on the hillsides and feeding the 5,000 and we've uh, wandered through his teachings in the in the areas of Galilee and then more recently as he's made his way to Jerusalem and he's done teaching there and then at the end of chapter 12 we see Jesus wrapping up his public ministry having poured himself out in this almost three-year period and in John 12 44 he says and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We've talked about the subtle and very effective ways that John organizes his writings. 
And how amazing that we have this concept of Jesus coming into the world to bring light to the darkness, to start the section and to finish this section. So cool. Verse 13 says, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, at that point is when we see this section with the disciples. That's who we have been with. Now he's stepped away from his public ministry. He's with the disciples. He begins by washing their, their feet. He's still teaching them. He's still modeling for them uh, how they are to uh, act as, as uh, true disciples. Uh, he teaches them about the Holy Spirit and so forth. And then in chapter 17, we saw everything wrap up with what we talked about, either the high priestly prayer or the prayer of consecration. This prayer uh, where he first of all prays for himself, and then he prays for uh, his disciples, and then he prays for us. He prays for uh, the church that is uh, to come, and all of this is, as a high priest would, prepare the sacrifice that is going to be given for the atonement of the people. He is, in fact, asking for himself to be consecrated for the task that God has put before him and that wraps up the second major section of John. Public, this intimate farewell discourse as we've talked about, and now things are going to pick up speed because in chapter 18, where we are today, we're heading to the cross. John 18, verse 1. says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and that these words reflects on everything that has been done since he started washing the disciples' feet, okay? So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Um, Luke chapter 21 Verse 37 says, in this period of time, the week leading up to where we are now, you know, a lot has happened that John doesn't tell us, you know, uh, Palm Sunday isn't recorded in John, all that sort of stuff. So a lot has happened that's not in John. Luke tells us every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet the Mount of Olives. So he would be in Jerusalem teaching. He would leave Jerusalem and head to the Mount of Olives. In order to get to the Mount of Olives, you crossed what's called the Kidron Valley. Um, it's, uh, in the rainy season, there would be a, a stream, but uh, at other times of year, it would be, um, it would be dry. Uh, some people say... Uh, that the word Kidron can mean dark and murky because if it was flowing, uh, it just so happened that it would often capture the runoff of the sacrifices of the temple. Uh, the, you know, 
hundreds if not thousands of animals being slain uh, by the priest and that blood running off down the hill um, to this dark murky riverbed uh, the Kidron Valley and it was across that valley where there was the Mount of Olives which it says there was a garden which he and his disciples entered and some people um, speculate because we know from the synoptic gospels that this was called Gethsemane which means oil press and they think that uh, this was an olive grove and um, I'll defer to those of you who have perhaps been there and the groups that are leading, uh, leaving tomorrow um, but uh, this was a garden an olive grove and, and because this is a place where Jesus had been going to every night some people may have think uh, or may think that there was a, a benefactor who had uh, basically had this garden and said, "Hey, you know, if you guys need a place to hang out, you can go. Uh, that can be your encampment." Um, because there were some ceremonial rules that they were kind of following. That if you were going to come for the Passover, you had to be close. There was um, some geographical markers. You couldn't be more than a day's walk away um, for the Passover day. But Anyway, because that was going to be on the Sabbath, you get the idea. So it was close. Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples, consistent with what I read from Luke. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So there's a lot in this verse. Um, Judas, we know, uh, he was the one to betray. He had uh, excused himself from the Last Supper. Um, and he had, again, we know from other documentation, he had gone to meet with the priest. And um, the, the plan was that he was going to go there and identify Jesus. Um, we, the classic uh, betrayed with a kiss isn't in John but we know that Judas was leading this this uh, confrontation you might say and it says having procured a band of soldiers this, this word a band of soldiers um, the Greek word can mean cohort which in Roman day uh, Designated at least on paper a, a thousand men, uh, more often referred to about six hundred men. Uh, some people say that there's another way that you can interpret the, the verse that maybe it's um, more like two hundred. But if you think about it, even two hundred men—that's a lot of people, right? That's a lot of people. Now, perhaps it was their practice to have overwhelming force. Um, one commentator made the point that when Paul was being guarded on his way back to Rome there were almost 300 people guarding him so for 200 people to be coming after uh, 12 uh, 11 and, and of his disciples and Jesus uh, would perhaps not have been that unusual but think about this in the absence of modern lighting if you guys have been out camping in the woods or out in the country where there's not a lot of light, if there's no artificial light, it can get pretty dark, right? 
But imagine a band of 200 people. Let's say every third or fourth one had a torch or a lantern. You would see that coming, right? Because you would have seen them, right? You're on the, the Mount of Olives is on the other side of the valley. Jerusalem is across the valley. You would have seen this coming down the hill on the other side, getting down, and then coming up. This would not have really been a surprise. Um, so they would have seen and probably heard them coming for a long time. But just get that mental in, image in your, in your head. And, and who were the people? It says there were soldiers. There were some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So you have Judas, one of the disciples. You have representation of the Jews. And then you have representation from the Romans. So they finally get there. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? One of the differences that many commentators note from how John tells the story to how the other uh, gospel writers tell the story of Jesus is we get a glimpse of it here. In the other synoptic gospels, we hear about the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane where uh, this oppressive weight that Jesus has to bear and, you know, Father, not my will but thine. And, and you really see Jesus from a humanity side of things uh, responding to the cross and, and what's coming. Um, they note in John we don't see Jesus as victim. We see Jesus as in charge. So think about that as we go through these next verses and really through everything between now and the cross. This is not a man who is a victim. This is a man who is in charge of what's happening. So have that in mind, and it puts a little bit different flavor on things. So now, John doesn't highlight the fact that he's portrayed with a kiss. John highlights the fact that Jesus is there waiting for them and says, who are you guys looking for? A little bit different, a little bit different flavor. And you'll see that carry through here. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. So now he's approaching them, right? Whom do you seek? <coughs> the first words that we hear really from Jesus' mouth in the first chapter of John is where John has a couple of his disciples who see Jesus walk by and Jesus says there goes the king of the world and his disciples start following Jesus and he says whom do you seek so here we have it again Jesus saying whom do you seek 
They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am. He says, I am he, but that, that he part is not part of the original text. It's, it's a way of reading it that's assumed. Um, but the actual word is I am. And it says Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And then we have a detail in John that we don't have anywhere else in Scripture. It says, when Jesus said to him, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. No one else records that. Now you could imagine, perhaps, and people have speculated, why did this happen? Was it because they were just shocked that he would admit it and somebody stumbled and because they were on a hill, everybody stumbled into each other and started falling down like a bunch of dominoes? Some people have kind of pictured, okay, this was just a comedy of bumbling people, you know. Um, I'm sure whoever designated this unit to go out in the middle of the night and capture this guy was probably the lowest ranking cohort because nobody, I'm not getting up, you send, send that group, you know, they're the lowest ranking people, they can go handle this. Um, and if you've been standing on the side of a hill, it doesn't take much to stumble. So maybe there's that, but, but perhaps what John is really trying to get across is that this was a big statement that certainly the last, and there were Jews, remember, a big part of this throng that was there. The last time Jesus said, I am about something, it said they picked up stones immediately because this was an I am statement of saying, I am God. And so once again, we have John using this I am statement to remind us about all of the things that have happened before. And since we're in kind of review mode, I'll go through those briefly. John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. John 8, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but sheep did not listen. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 11, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then to Thomas, just in chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then the last one in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. So, the response to 
the crowd that I am he and they stumble back and again it seems that he basically said I am think about the impact on those people that are in front of him but I also think about the impact on those people behind him as they saw this man of courage who is in charge facing his accusers reminding everyone one last time of who he is and why he came and John is using this as a device to remind us of all those other times when Jesus claimed to be who he really was the I am after they collected themselves in verse 7 so he asked them again whom do you seek he said Jesus of Nazareth he said I told you I am he so if you seek me let these men go uh, I picture I don't know if any Star Trek fans here but in the very first Star Trek we have Obi-Wan um, trying to gain his way into the city and he does this Jedi mind trick on the guards there you know it's okay for you to pass, and, and, and they do. And I kind of think, you know, Jesus like saying, um, not really asking, hey, will you let these guys go? He says, let these men go. Think about it. He's pretty much told them what to do. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and stuck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Attaboy, Pete. Um, you know, um, I'm assuming maybe it was, I don't know, if he was right-handed, if he drew it and then came across, heading for the guy's head, if this guy tried to dodge to the left and he just caught his ear, maybe that's how it happened. Um, maybe that was what he was shooting for. I don't know. It was dark. But we have a few details here. Uh, it's only John that, says, that tells us who it was. Oh, that's Peter. Um, and it's only John that tells us the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has for me? Wearsby makes the point that in this little section you have the contrast. In Peter's hand you have a sword. A sword that exemplifies bloodshed, violence, not understanding still the way that Jesus is going to conquer um, limited a narrow field of understanding compared with Jesus in charge seeing the big picture and it's his hand he's not holding a sword but he's holding the cup the cup that he knows that he needs to drink 
contrast there. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Um, anyone powerful enough, we know from other passages that Jesus healed the servant right away. Um, anyone powerful enough to have done that was certainly powerful enough to escape, powerful enough to refuse being bound, powerful enough to do whatever he wanted. But here we have Jesus being bound. So obviously this is a voluntary thing. It wouldn't have happened if he hadn't submitted to that. This is the early tastings of the cup that he was going to have to drink. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. So, John is the only writer that tells us this detail about when Jesus is going to uh, interact with Annas. And it's, it's an interesting um, detail because um, Annas had been the high priest. And Jewish law said, it was like, almost like a, you were high priest until you died being high priest. You died in office. But the Romans had basically deposed Annas from that position. And over the course of the next several years, perhaps even a few decades, some, some of Annas' sons had taken the role of being high priest. And it was Caiaphas who was officially the high priest. And it was Caiaphas who was, of the sons, the high priest the longest. And it w was Caiaphas who, whose tenure coincided to the greatest degree with when Pilate was there. So Caiaphas and Pilate would have known each other and had had this, you know, somewhat cooperative relationship for perhaps even a decade. But it shows the level of corruption that was already there. So remember, Jesus had already, you know, on at least two major occasions, had directly confronted the corruption of the church in the temple, right? And, and uh, this would have been, you know, certainly a thorn probably in, in the side of, of the leadership. And it was known that, I mean, it was like the family business. Annas and his underlings kind of ran things. I mean, that was, that was known. Um, and, you know, it would have been known also that, yeah, Caiaphas is high priest, but we know who's calling the shots here still, and it's still Annas. We, we know the Romans don't recognize him, but... We all know who's still calling the shots. It's the godfather, the head of the family, 
and it's Annas. So we get this detail there. First, they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Um, so an interesting little detail. And uh, it's another testament to the accuracy of Scripture that it would pull in uh, these, little, these little details there. Uh, interestingly, this verse 14, uh, you know, several places in John, we have the characters inadvertently speaking truth uh, that they're not even fully aware of. In chapter 11, this is after Raz, uh, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Um, verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews who had come with Mary had seen what he did and therefore believed uh, in Jesus. It said, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So that's funny, right? Um, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Also true. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, this is great. Oh, you don't know anything at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And it says, in verse 51, he didn't say this of his own accord, but because he was a high priest, he was prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation. So he's inadvertently prophesying that Jesus is going to die for the sins of the nation. It's just, this is great. Anyway, so John reminds us, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is great. Verse 15. Now, you guys are familiar with the Passion Week. You know there's a lot of back and forth that's happening. So here we are, um, Passover uh, is going to be on the Sabbath, which by their reckoning starts Friday night. So this is Thursday night when all this is happening, because we're going to talk, if we get to it, we're heading to Pilate's house next. But Pilate, the habit was, would only receive <coughs> official business from sunrise till about 10 or 11 in the morning. Then he was done. So they knew they had to get their ducks in a row with this somewhat of a mock interrogation, check off whatever boxes on the form that they felt they needed to check before they can present them to Pilate to put the power behind what they wanted to happen. And most people think that, and it's kind of obvious if you think about it, Pilate knew what the arrangement was going to be. He knew what the schedule was. It wouldn't have been blind to him that a contingent of his soldiers was going out the night before, right? I mean, he would have been apprised of this. He would have known what the scoop was. So, 
from a time frame, that's when all this is happening, and there's, there's some rushing behind getting it done. So we know this back and forth. So there's Annas, first dibs, and then we have this next little scene where Peter um, is in the midst. So verse 15, so Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. So this is an interesting detail that we also don't see a lot of other places. Who's this other disciple? We don't really know. Um, most people think it wasn't one of the 12 because they were primarily from Galilee and this is somebody who um, is known to the high priest such that would be allowed entry to go into that courtyard. Um, so it's not like, oh, I know the gal that cuts my hair. It's not that kind of knowledge. It's, it's somebody you would know much more intimately and probably of a similar social status. Um, and so there's speculation on who that was. You, you know, was it Nicodemus? Was it Joseph of Arimathea? Was some other disciple that we don't know of? Um, but it is interesting, okay, so Jesus is not going in there fully alone. Um, let's see. Uh, Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter, lowly Galilean that he was, stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant door, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. So once he's in, he tells the servant girl, hey, go let my buddy in. Because he you know, would have a position of authority over the servant girl. She would certainly have done what he asked. And she says to him, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he responds, of course, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter was also with the, standing and warming himself. Verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temples where all the Jews have come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those for who have heard me what I said to them that they know what I said. Um, I may actually pause here and, and mention one other thing that I think is appropriate. Um, so we might get into the the high priest questioning uh, more next time, but um, you see this back and back and forth, and um, you know we know that you know Peter is has has made his denial there already. But uh, a couple of other symbolic things that we see in this chapter, we've talked about a couple. We talked about the cup. We talked about the sword. Um, at the very first are a couple of mental images that are worth dwelling on before we head on. Um, in the very first verse of chapter 18, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the Kidron Valley. 
And then he goes to the Mount of Olives there. So here you have Jesus being rejected by the people who are not recognizing him as king, leaving the city of Jerusalem, crossing down into this valley and then going across to the other side, basically in the wilderness where he is separate from the people that he really loves and cares about. Extremely strong parallels to Second Samuel where we were not that long ago. Remember, Absalom has been betraying King David, sets himself up to be the arbiter of the people, right? And turns the tide of the people against David. And you see in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, I can turn there quickly enough. can't find the exact passage. Oh, here it is. Um, 2 Samuel 15, verse 23. People wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on to the wilderness. So he, the rejected king, who should have been there to help his people, gets betrayed leaves Jerusalem, crossing the same Kidron Valley, and winding up on the same mountain. Pretty cool little detail that John gives us there. And like we see so much throughout Scripture, just like Jesus is the better Moses, we have a reminder here that Jesus is also the better David. Uh, And of course, these things continue throughout Scripture. And then one final thing is... It says, he crossed, this is Jesus, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. So you could tell the whole story of why we're here and everything just by gardens. It all started in a garden, right? It all started in a garden where God was walking in free fellowship with his creation We have violence in the garden. We have the first bloodshed in the garden. We have that original Adam, the inadequate Adam, um, who is banished from the garden and sin entering into the world. Here, we have the ultimate true Adam, Jesus, entering in the garden dealing with the violence that's there entering the garden for the purposes of drinking the cup that was going to be necessary to actually save the world so that if you turn to Revelation and you hear about 
where the tree of life is in verse in uh, chapter 21 and the river of life that's flowing through it you have this full description of the new jerusalem as basically the ultimate garden where we're all going to be one day and so you can tell the whole story just from your garden so this is spring so just kind of think about that those of you that have green thumbs uh, or those of us that appreciate people with green thumbs um, and as you're in conversation, think about that. You can tell the whole story of Jesus just from your garden. I think that's pretty cool. Thanks to uh, Dr. Wearsby for that illustration. All right, we better quit. Right, let, me, let me say one thing. Um, if you read your